This is The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month we ask a New Yorker fiction writer to select a story from our archives to read and discuss. This month, Edwidge Danticat chose How to Date a Brown Girl, Black Girl, White Girl, or Haffy by Juno Diaz, which was first published in the magazine in 1995. It was included in Diaz's first book, Drown, a collection of stories set in the barrios of the Dominican Republic and in the hoods of New Jersey, published by Riverhead. The book caused a sensation when it came out in 1996. It's now in its 23rd printing. The story is what the title says it is, dating instructions for a Dominican teenager living in urban New Jersey. If the girls from around the way take her to El Cibao for dinner, order everything in your busted-up Spanish, let her correct you if she's Latina, and amaze her if she's black. If she's not from around the way, Wendy's will do. This month's story was selected from the New Yorker archives by Edwige Danticat, who has been publishing fiction in the magazine since 1999. She is the author of several books of fiction, including Crick Crack, The Farming of Bones, and The Dewbreaker. In this year's summer fiction issue, we published a piece adapted from her forthcoming memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, about her family in Haiti. I asked Edwidge Danticat why she chose this story. It's one of the stories that you like in spite of yourself. You feel like, I shouldn't really laugh or I shouldn't really um, enjoy this character, but you do. And, I, and part of it, I think it's the voice, but also the, um, the mix of both bravado, sort of the, this machismo, and this kind of vulnerability that this character shows throughout the entire story. I'll talk with Edwidge Danticat again later in the program, but first here's a recording made in 1998 of Juno Diaz reading his story, How to Date a Brown Girl, Black Girl, White Girl, or Haffy. Wait for your brother, your sisters, and your mother to leave the apartment. You've already told them that you're feeling too sick to go to Union City to visit that Dia who likes to squeeze your nuts. He's gotten big, she'll say. And even though your moms knew you weren't sick, you stuck to your story until finally she said, Go ahead and stay, malcriado. Clear the government cheese from the refrigerator. If the girls from the terrace stack the boxes behind the milk. If she's from the park or Society Hill, hide the cheese in the cabinet above the oven, way up where she'll never see. Leave yourself a reminder to get it out before morning where your moms will kick your ass. Take down any embarrassing photos of your family in the campo, especially the one with the half-naked kids dragging a goat on a rope leash. The kids are your cousins, and by now they're old enough to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Hide the pictures of yourself with an afro. Make sure the bathroom is presentable. Put the basket with all the crap-down toilet paper under the sink. Spray the bucket with Lysol, then close the cabinet. Shower, comb, and dress. Sit on the couch and watch TV. If she's an outsider, her father will be bringing her, maybe her mother. Her parents don't want her seeing any boys from the terrace. People get stabbed in the terrace. But she's strong-headed, and this time, she will get her way. If she's a white girl, you're sure you'll at least get a hand job. The directions you gave her were in your best handwriting, so her parents won't think you're an idiot. Get up from the couch and check the parking lot. Nothing. If the girl's local, don't sweat it. She'll flow over when she's good and ready. Sometimes she'll run into her friends and a whole crowd will show up. And even though that means you ain't getting shit, it will be fun anyway and you'll wish these people would come over more often. Sometimes the girl won't flow over at all and the next day in school she'll smile and say, Sorry. 
and you'll believe her and be stupid enough to ask her out again. Wait, and after an hour, go out to your corner. The neighborhood is full of traffic. Give one of your boys a shout, and when he says, Are you still waiting on that bitch? Say, Hell yeah. Get back inside. Call her house, and when her father picks up, ask if she's there. He'll ask, Who is this? Hang up. He sounds like a principal or a police chief, the sort of dude with a big neck who never has to watch his back. Sit and wait. By the time your stomach's ready to give out on you, a Honda or maybe a Jeep pulls in and out she comes. Hey, you'll say. Look, she'll say. Um, my mom wants to meet you. She's got herself all worried about nothing. Don't panic. Say, hey, no problem. Run a hand through your hair like the white boys do, even though the only thing that runs easily through your hair is Africa. She will look good. The white girls are the ones you want the most, but the out-of-towners are usually black, black girls who grew up with ballet and Girl Scouts who have three cars in their driveway. If she's a halfy, don't be surprised that her mother is white. Say hi. She'll say, Hi. And you'll see that you don't scare her, not really. She will say that she needs easier directions to get out, and even though she already has the best directions in her lap, give her new ones. Make her happy. You have choices. If the girls from around the way take her to El Cibao for dinner, order everything in your busted-up Spanish. Let her correct you if she's Latina and amaze her if she's black. If she's not from around the way, Wendy's will do. As you walk to the restaurant, talk about school. A local girl won't need stories about the neighborhood, but the other ones might. Supply the story about the loco who'd been storing canisters of tear gas in his basement for years. How one day the canisters cracked and the whole neighborhood got a dose of the military strength stuff. Don't tell her that your moms knew right away what it was. That she recognized its smell from the year the United States invaded your island. Hope that you don't run into your nemesis, Howie, the Puerto Rican kid with the two killer mutts. He walks them all over the neighborhood, and every now and then, the mutts corner themselves a cat and tear it to shreds, Howie laughing as the cat flips up in the air, its neck twisted around like an owl, red meat showing through the soft fur. If his dogs haven't cornered a cat, he will walk behind you and say, Hey, Junior, is that your new fuck, buddy? Let him talk. Howie weighs about 200 pounds and could eat you if he wanted. At the field, he will turn away. He has new sneakers and doesn't want them muddy. If the girl's an outsider, she'll hiss now. What a fucking asshole. A homegirl would have been yelling back at him the whole time, unless she was shy. Either way, don't feel bad that you didn't do anything. Never lose a fight on a first date where that will be the end of it. Dinner will be tense. You are not good at talking to people you don't know. A halfie will tell you that her parents met in the movement. Back then, she'll say, People thought it was the radical thing to do. It will sound like something her parents made her memorize. Your brother once heard that one too and said, Man, that sounds like a whole lot of Uncle Tom and to me. Don't repeat this. Put down your hamburger and say, It must have been hard. She will appreciate your interest. She will tell you more. Black people. She will say. Treat me real bad. That's why I don't like them. You'll wonder how she feels about Dominicans. Don't ask. Let her speak on it 
and when you've finished eating, walk back through the neighborhood. The skies will be magnificent. Pollutants have made Jersey sunsets one of the wonders of the world. Point it out. Touch your shoulder and say, that's nice, right? Get serious. Watch TV, but stay alert. Sip some of the rum your father left in the cabinet which nobody touches. She'll drink enough to make her brave. A local girl may have hips and a thick ass, but she won't be quick about letting you touch. She has to live in the same neighborhood as you do. She might just chill with you and then go home. She might kiss you and then go. Or she might, if she's reckless, give it up, but that's rare. Kissing will suffice. A white girl might give it up right then. Don't stop her. She'll take her gum out of her mouth and stick it to the plastic sofa covers and then move close to you. You have nice eyes, she might say. Tell her that you love her hair, her skin, her lips, because in truth you love them more than you love your own. She'll say, I like Spanish guys. And even though you've never been to Spain, say, I like you. You'll sound smooth. You'll be with her until about 8.30, and then she'll want to wash up. In the bathroom, she will hum a song from the radio, and her waist will keep a beat against the lip of the sink. Imagine her old lady coming to get her, what she would say if she knew her daughter had just lain under you and blown your name, pronounced with her eighth-grade Spanish, into your ear. While she's in the bathroom, call one of your boys and say, Lo hice, cabrón, or just sit back on the couch and smile. But usually, usually it won't work this way. Be prepared. She will not want to kiss you. Just cool it, she'll say. The halfy might lean back, breaking away from you. She will cross her arms, say, I hate my tits. Stroke her hair, but she will pull away. Oh, I don't like anybody to touch my hair, she will say. She will act like somebody you don't know. In school, she is known for her attention-grabbing laugh, as high and as far-ranging as a gull, but here she will worry you. You will not know what to say. You're the only kind of guy who asks me out, she'll say. You and the black boys. Say nothing. Let her button her shirt, let her comb her hair, the sound of it stretching like a sheet of fire between you. When her father pulls in and beeps, let her go without too much of a goodbye. She won't want it. During the next hour, the phone will ring. You will be tempted to pick it up. Don't. Watch the shows you want to watch without a family around to debate you. Don't go downstairs. Don't fall asleep. It won't help. Put the government cheese back in its place before your mother kills you. That was How to Date a Brown Girl, Black Girl, White Girl, or Haffy, written and read by Juno Diaz with Gail Thomas doing the women's voices. The recording was made for The New Yorker Out Loud, Volume 2, an audio anthology of stories from the magazine that's available on CD. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. 
Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ed Weech, in this particular story, do the sexual politics here seem very familiar to you from your side of it, or, or were the mores slightly different in the Haitian community or in Brooklyn? Even if you talk to a Dominican girl, the mores would be <laughs> very different from their side of it. Um, that's that, you know, this story is very boy. You know, it's funny that the white girls are the ones who who will go all the way. You know? Well, I think the funny thing about that too is that it's sort of it's the perception yeah. you know I think that's what I like about the story it's at the end he apparently reluctantly admits you know that it may not happen <laughs> the way he's imagined you know that that's what is very structurally and also aesthetically interesting about the stories is the contrast between the reality of it and what's hoped for and so I mean ultimately I see the way I read it it's sort of he ends up alone and he's sort of resisting this um Watching kind TV of and, and sticking yeah, exactly. the government cheese back in the fridge. <laughs> exactly. This is like sort of, sort of your own, your own, and resist, and which I think is very difficult for young men. I have three brothers, and I can speak to that younger brother. <laughs> this idea of like just sitting and by yourself and reflecting. This is sort of a reluctant reflection the way the story is told. Yeah. There are obviously some autobiographical elements to this story. Juno was born in the Dominican Republic, he moved to the U.S. as a child and lived in a poor Dominican neighborhood in New Jersey. And he's talked a bit in the past about the pressure he feels to represent his community in fiction, since there are so few other writers doing it. Is is that a pressure that you can identify with as a Haitian-American? Absolutely. And I think um, part of the burden, I guess, if there is a burden to being one of a few people from your community writing to the larger community is that People often, you know, people outside the community expect what you write to be some kind of gospel. Juno has often said that he feels like a native informant, and I totally can identify with this. And I think people will read what you write, and they feel like it's anthropology as, as opposed to fiction. And he's handled it very well in the in the work that he has done by allowing himself this kind of liberty first to be an artist and writing things that may not please often people inside the community who are often your biggest critics is there a sense that you that you shouldn't be in a way airing the dirty laundry absolutely yeah and i think it's tough sometimes to sort of balance the political correctness of that with boldness you know that being an artist requires and I, we've done um, a few things together we're often paired together for events and such because we're Hispaniolans, as I, <laughs> as I like to say, you know, from two sides of that the same island. And I've been at things with him where, where the women, you know, in the audience sort of just sometimes they want to just rip him to shreds, you know, um, <laughs> because of, you know, some of the things that you've heard in the story. And I feel like, and they, they feel like, you know, he is that person all the time and so forth. So, you know, he's had strong reactions um, to that story in particular and others. But I think what people miss sometimes is the vulnerability, the complexity of these characters. I suppose, you know, more than ever in, in when you're writing about a particularly tight-knit minority community, people are going to assume that what you're writing is your autobiography and, and not about made-up characters. It's a reality. I mean, it's something that we have to deal with and not complain too much about. <laughs> no one assumes that 
John Updike is writing about all white men. Exactly. Um, yeah. Even in his case, people would say, well, he's writing about a certain generation. But in our case, people assume that we're writing not just our autobiography, not just our singular experience, but still at the same time, you know, paradoxically about an entire group or race of people. So it's very strange. Stylistically, um, Juno often uses Dominican Spanish mixed in with his English. I know you often use some some Creole words in your stories. Do you feel that you guys have taken some stylistic tips from each other? Well, one of the things that I often quote from his book is the epigraph. It's the quote from Gustavo Perez Fermat where he says, the fact that I'm writing to you in English already falsifies what I wanted to tell you. My subject, how to explain to you that I don't belong to English, though I belong nowhere else. People often ask us, why do you write in English? And and that always seems to me like such a fantastic answer. Mm-hmm. People often miss the complexity of our particular community, meaning people who came like we did as young people who are not extraordinarily fluent in Spanish, who came to English in the way that this um, this quote describes. Migration has made us the people we are, and this is... Um, a lot of us came to our creativity at the same time that we came into this other language, and this is the, a product of it. Mm-hmm. As we've said, the story was, was kind of a groundbreaking thing when it came out, and the whole collection even more so. Do you feel as though Juno has spawned a whole school of people writing in this way? I hope so. I mean, I hope he's inspired a whole slew of people. Um, but I'm looking forward to his book that is coming out this fall. Yeah, we're we're going to run a story taken from it uh, in the fiction issue. Oh, fantastic. He and I will be reunited You'll be there. reunited in print. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll look forward to that, and I'll look forward to, I mean, I'll look forward to the book. Edwidge Danticat, thanks so much. Thank you, Deborah. It was great talking to you. Edwidge Danticat's memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, will be published by Knopf this fall. You can read a piece by Edwidge about her family in Haiti in the summer fiction issue of The New Yorker and on newyorker.com, where you'll find more fiction and fiction podcasts. The summer fiction issue also features a story drawn from Juno Diaz's new novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, which will be published by Riverhead in September. You can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. If you'd like to hear more from The New Yorker, visit iTunes or audible.com to download the weekly audio edition of the magazine. You've been listening to The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.